0: says the train's lost. How can a train be lost? It's on rails. Apparently we took a wrong turn at some point last night. That's crazy. How far off course are we? Nobody knows. We haven't located us yet. What'd you just say? What? What you just said, say it again. We haven't located us yet. Ah! Is that symbolic? We haven't located us yet. Where's those feathers at? In the envelope I gave you this morning. Meet me on top of that thing out there. me when the moon turns, do you trust me? I hired a private detective to track down mom. She's living in a convent in the foothills of the Himalayas. We'll be there in six days.
1: How is that possible?
0: I guess she became a nun, apparently. You know what she's like. A nun? Apparently. Did you talk to her? No, I didn't. Does she know we're coming? I think so. (laughs) How do you know she wants to see us? She probably doesn't, but maybe she does. Why didn't you tell us sooner? Because I'm trying to protect you from all the painful emotions. This is probably going to stir up. Well, aren't you kind of doing that right now? Yeah. I'm scared, too. She's obviously suffered some kind of mental collapse, and we've got to go get her and bring her back home. Actually, it's in the itinerary, but I put it under TBD.
2: (laughs) God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what?
0: Let me ask you something. Why reason you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick?
2: Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 282, The Darjeeling Limited Plus Hotel Chevalier.
4: I think this happened at different moments for different people, but this is the one for me where I started feeling the palpable Wes Anderson backlash. Although it was completely different for me. This was, this like got me back into them in a big, bad way and still is one of my favorites outside of the main ones.
3: Well, I think the real Backlash was the one before, okay, which was hated by critics and gotcha. lost a lot of money, the Life Aquatic. But we'll get into that more later as we go, because I do think that this and Life Aquatic go hand in hand. So we will talk about Life Aquatic, but uh, spoiler alert. In lieu of recommendations, we are going to do our rankings of Wes Anderson films at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a little bit of time to summarize our brief thoughts on each of the films, I guess, as we go through it. But yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I, I do think that this movie is polarizing. I know a lot of people hate it. Yeah, and it's a lot divisive. Of people like it. Right. But at the time, there was definitely a Wes Anderson fan base that felt like this was a comeback because... The Life Aquatic did not go over well At the time I do think that that's changed And people have now started to embrace The Life Aquatic more But in 2004 it was not okay. well liked Although I liked it
4: Yeah, I don't know I I remember seeing this and feeling like I probably missed the whole Life Aquatic backlash And I don't know It seemed like people were just into this The whole Bill Murray, Steve Zissou thing I don't know I, I guess it, it just wasn't a part of my Life at the time.
3: Before we talk about the Darjeeling Limited and Hotel Chevalier, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod and make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's not just words. We really would like you to do so. We love to read the reviews. Of course, five stars only. Definitely. Don't get carried away. <laughs>
4: Yeah. (laughs) Hey, listen, the five-star people have really outweighed the non-five-star people, and we appreciate that.
3: If you'd like a free sticker, contact us on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and we can send that out to you.
4: That's right. I've started sending them out again after a little bit of a lull there.
3: And find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby, the Darjeeling Limited, and Hotel Chevalier, which is a short film. We're going to talk about both. They were released in 2007. Both were directed by Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson also wrote Hotel Chevalier himself. The Darjeeling Limited was written by Anderson, Roman Coppola, and Jason Schwartzman. The characters are all fictional.
4: (laughs) I think that Hotel Chevalier is probably the only time in my life that I've really seen like the press covering a short film. Yeah. It was kind of like big news that Natalie Portman was in it.
3: Yeah, Natalie Portman was on the ascension that would lead to Black Swan and the Oscar win, and she was, at that time, probably one of the bigger movie stars, which really isn't the case now, but this was like her peak era. For whatever reason, it was the right moment for Wes Anderson. There was a lot of buzz around hotel chevalier and natalie portman's nude scene and that's right yeah. all that stuff which of course you know sort of infuriated her and made her swear not to do one again and all that kind of stuff but whatever we'll get into that in a second but yeah there was talk that they were going to submit this for the best short film uh-huh. at the oscars and all that stuff. it didn't really happen and whatever but there was a big buzz for this film I think probably yeah. because of its availability on iTunes for free.
4: I can remember a friend of mine who was really into movies telling me that he didn't like Darjeeling Limited, but he liked Hotel Chevalier, which seemed like the most pretentious thing. <laughs> like I, he liked the short film that preceded it, but not the the feature.
3: I could get that though yeah. because they are very different, right?
4: For sure, and I do really enjoy the short film. Tonally, and even just the whole thing that's going on with the Jason Schwartzman character.
3: Okay, before we get into Hotel Chevalier, let's run through some of the deets for Darjeeling itself. The budget was $17.5 million. The box office was $35 million. And this was in an era, like I said, where we're post-Life Aquatic. And I was say, saying to you before we started recording that it's funny how much... Budget factors into our perception of films, yeah, yeah. Because honestly, the Life Aquatic, which was considered a massive failure, and the Darjeeling Limited, which was not and considered a little bit of a comeback, made about the same amount, but the difference was the budget. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the Darjeeling Limited only cost seventeen point five million, the Life Aquatic was fifty million, and so people were like, "Oh my god, this is a disaster." <laughs>
4: Yeah, I really just didn't have my finger on the pulse of what would have been going on with his career because Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, I just first saw those because they aired them on Comedy Central all the time. So like when Life Aquatic came out, I did not see it in the theater. I think when I saw it for the first time, I was watching it with people who liked it. So that was just my perception.
3: Yeah. I would say that paired with the Life Aquatic, Darjeeling Limited represents a little bit of a line in the sand with Wes Anderson. The first three films of his career, full-length feature films, were co-written with Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson really stops being a contributor on the writing side. Uh And I think there's a noticeable difference in the tone of the films. I would say that The Life Aquatic and Darjeeling Limited are bridging the gap between the more grounded films of the beginning of his career and then the more twee films that would... Start to get more and more and more controlled and exist in his like fantasy world that he creates. Yeah. Although, even though it's not in this
4: order, I feel like Life Aquatic was more on the weird fantasy side of things. And this one has a little bit more on the realism. Yeah. That's
3: probably due to the budget. Yeah. That's true.
4: He probably wanted to have more with the man eating tiger
3: that would have (laughs) been like this cartoony looking thing.
4: But. Yeah, I probably couldn't pull it off.
3: The Darjeeling holds a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it was mostly favorably reviewed at the time. There were detractors. I do think that it has become somewhat of a polarizing film. I think there's a hesitancy to embrace it because one of the big criticisms with Wes Anderson over time is his lack of diversity in the cast. His casts are generally overwhelmingly white
1: Mm -hmm.
3: and so then when you take that and you put it into india and then you have the three main characters being white and their interactions with the indian people and stuff like that i think there's a a little bit of nervousness as to how we're supposed to feel about this film yeah yeah. but while you could argue that the characters of rita or perhaps the, the boys in the river or some of the other characters end up feeling like props some of the time, I do think that you have to understand that at no point are we supposed to think of the Whitman brothers as anything but buffoons. <laughs> and we're supposed to be laughing at their antics and at their ridiculous notion of how they're going to be enlightened in this forced journey. Absolutely. That's such a big part of it. And things like that. But I, I definitely get the hesitancy. And I, I think that 2007 was a time when people were first starting to call these things out more yeah it would certainly increase over time to where we are today but to have this be the movie and it being set in India even though I think that the motivations were more pure than people might realize one of which was the Indian filmmaker Satyajit Rai Uh uh-huh and Wes Anderson falling in love with his films and thinking I want to set this there because of his films and things like that but people aren't seeing it like that they're seeing these three right white characters are they making a mockery of this are they doing that are they but ultimately i think we realize that we're supposed to be laughing at the three main characters and then more being than anything like, else. out of place in this environment it was a weird time it was a weird time for everyone i remember seeing this film in the theater after having already downloaded Hotel Chevalier and watching it, and then Hotel Chevalier played with it at the screening I had, which I think it did a lot. Yeah. I don't believe that it did everywhere, every time, but I think its initial weekend or run, it did play before the the film.
4: I didn't see this in the theater, and I kind of remember just thinking that this wasn't going to be for me. When it came out streaming on whatever, HBO On Demand, I mean streaming, you know, whatever it was on cable... I just put it on and got a half hour into it and just found myself laughing like so much and like really getting into the world and Hotel Chevalier was not a part of it, but I quickly went out and bought the DVD after I watched it one time.
3: I just remember that the film came out in, I believe, late September or early October of 2007 and I think... You have to mention that there was Owen Wilson's suicide attempt in August of 2007, so this film comes out very shortly thereafter, and then his character, Francis, is ultimately revealed to have attempted suicide by the end of the film. That's right. You don't realize that the whole time, and then it comes out. There just was this weird awkwardness that it's not fun to have to bring up, but I definitely remember that factoring into the screening of the film, seeing it opening weekend and thinking about that and not really knowing what was going on. And then you have this character. Yeah. One of the big things that jumps out with the Darjeeling Limited, of course, as with most Wes Anderson films, is the soundtrack and the score. A lot of the songs are from other Indian films and Merchant Ivory productions, but then he, of course, uses the Brit pop and three songs from... I know. Lola versus Power Man and the Money Go Round Part 1 by The Kinks.
4: Yeah, that's another big piece of it for me after seeing this movie and really loving it was how much I listened to all the music from it for quite a while after seeing it the first time.
3: It's sort of an obscure album, even though Lola is on it, which oh, is yeah. one of The Kinks' biggest songs, but the the version that I think became a big hit was a live version of Lola. Right, And so this studio album was not really one of their most known albums and he picks three tracks from it and
4: all pretty great
3: yeah and then of course the rolling Stones song and everything else so what we're gonna do is discuss hotel chevalier which is its own thing but it ends up being a prologue to the darjeeling limited even though it wasn't always intended to be that and then we'll talk about the Darjeeling limited itself as we usually do and then at the end we're gonna do our West Anderson rankings I know that I've shared mine with a listener to the show at least once and I feel like has it changed since yeah then? I feel okay. like it's completely different now <laughs> I do think that out of his 10 films the top and the bottom are yeah. pretty defined and then that middle section are all about equal I kind of have that
4: with Tarantino as well And it does change depending on what I've watched most recently, which is something you said to me about Wes Anderson before we recorded, which I I agree with.
3: Hotel Chevalier works as a prologue to the Darjeeling Limited. It was initially intended to be a standalone work. Wes Anderson self-financed this short film starring Jason Schwartzman and Natalie Portman as former lovers who reunite in a Paris hotel room. Mm Mm-hmm. Schwartzmann and Portman worked for free, and shortly before filming commenced, Anderson realized the connection between Schwartzman's character and the one that would become Jack in Darjeeling. I believe they first started working on this in 2005, uh-huh. and Darjeeling doesn't come out till 2007, and I think when he contacted one of the producers to get in touch with Natalie Portman she was just coming off of Closer or something like that so that's sort of your timeline and that's why it makes sense that this wasn't originally connected to Darjeeling because that was still something that he was in the script stage with Right, and this was supposed to be its own thing originally and so at 13 minutes in length Hotel Chevalier becomes a prologue to the Darjeeling Limited it takes place two weeks before Jack joins his two older brothers on a journey in India, Fox Searchlight, the studio that backed Darjeeling, was unaware of the short until the feature was already completed.
4: There's definitely like a heaviness to it, which might be a little bit of a peek at where you're heading with Darjeeling.
3: When it was all done, I didn't want to incorporate the short into the movie, but I couldn't decide how I wanted it to go. I wanted to play the short in front of the movie, but not always. Sometimes I preferred to watch the movie without the short, it became a puzzle to me. So in the end I decided that I would like to have the movie open in America without the short, but I would like people to have access to it if they want to see it first. And that was Wes Anderson in October 2007. Uh-huh. Although I do think that the short did play with the Dart Darjeeling Limited some of the time.
4: Right. <laughs> But then on all the physical media, it I think my memory is the DVD was this way, too. I know the Criterion Blu-ray is this way, where it always gives you the option.
3: Yeah. Hotel Chevalier premiered with the Darjeeling Limited in September of 2007 and then was free to download on iTunes for one month. It was downloaded over 500,000 times. I was one of them. Oh, wow. I remember watching it and enjoying it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Look, it makes me fucking sick. How much I relate to this bullshit in this fucking thing. I know. Much more so than the story of the Darjeeling Limited itself. I don't know. I
4: relate to all three of those dudes in that movie, which is (laughs) one of the reasons I Yeah, but I'm
3: not talking about relating to the characters. I'm talking about what happens in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Specifically what happens. Okay, (laughs) yeah. It's not something I'm thrilled about anymore. Yeah. It serves as a reminder of all the stupid and embarrassing things that I've ever done. Uh Uh-huh. This fucking short (laughs) it hits like a little too close though yeah
4: i definitely listened to where did you go to my lovely like an embarrassing
3: amount of times after this in a hotel lobby the concierge answers a phone call from a guest's room jack played by jason schwartzman lies on a hotel bed in a yellow bathrobe watching the black and white american war film stalag 17 and reading the newspaper After ordering room service from the concierge in broken French, he receives a call from Rhett, his ex-girlfriend. She tells him she is on her way from the airport and asks for his room number. Despite objecting that he did not tell her she could come, Jack consents nevertheless. Hello? Hi. I'm
2: on my way from the airport and the front desk won't give me your room number. What's your room number? 403. See you in half an hour. Wait a second. What? Where are you? I'm here. I didn't say you could come here. Can I come there? Okay. I'll see you in half an hour.
4: Now, one of the things that jumps out and becomes more clear the more times you watch it is the illusion of life that he's curated here and continues to curate. (laughs) It's the music. It's how he's decorated this luxury hotel room.
3: Yeah, I definitely think that Hotel Chevalier is about control, and Rhett is this agent of chaos. Not only... In his life, but just in the world, she represents much bigger things. There's a lot of symbolism in both this and Uh Darjeeling Limited. We can get more into different things with her character as they appear, because we haven't even seen her yet, but she's this living embodiment of a monkey wrench in the gears of this world that he's sought to create, which is funny because Wes Anderson, as a director, is this guy. He (laughs) is these characters that try to create everything. That's what a lot of his movies end up being about. Uh Whether you're talking about Max in Rushmore right. or the geniuses in Royal Tenenbaums yeah. or Owen Wilson's character in Bottle Rocket or Aquatic. Well, I listened to Life Aquatic. An
4: interview with him kind of being annoyed about people calling his movies quirky or his characters quirky or whatever, because he's like, Well, pretty much all of these characters are based off people I know or people from my life. Maybe there's a little bit of a spin there too to like the fantasy side, but most of these characters are based off people
3: well i'm just saying that in those characters they're trying to always control their environment and usually the message of the movie seems to be how foolish that is and right how that's right yeah wrong or whatever but he himself as a filmmaker yes is the most meticulous trying to create and control every single element to the point where a lot of his films do sort of become Fantasy or Uh existing in a not real world anymore because he's just taken every single detail and made it into what he envisions, totally, rather than reality, which is what Rhett sort of represents. She represents the chaos of the real world, I'd say, randomness, yeah, the scariness of everyday life. Something could go wrong if you step outside your perfect little hotel suite that you've controlled every element of, including. The fucking score. Uh You have to score your life to these songs and whatnot.
4: The reality of living in this luxury hotel for more than a month. Now, he makes a joke about it. (laughs) It's just like how much money he's paid. He's like something like 750 million euros. Yeah. But it would be insane. Whether uh, there's some Whitman family money. I mean, this book of short stories or whatever that he put out would have to be wildly successful to support
3: this life. Yeah, I think the idea is that there's family money. I don't yeah, think yeah. that they're saying that he has this money from his fucking dumbass writing. <laughs> Wes Anderson certainly has an obsession with hotel life, if you think about it. Bottle oh, Rocket, definitely. they live in a motel briefly. Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums. Royal and Royal Tenenbaums yeah. lives in a hotel. Bill Murray ends up in a hotel in Rushmore. Uh-huh. The Grand Budapest Hotel is a fucking <laughs> <Yeah>. movie. <laughs> Natalie Portman's voice on the phone I don't know that she's ever quite had this voice in anything else. Yeah, it's definitely there's like, like a, a hoarseness ho- to it almost. Yeah, like she's been partying nonstop. Yeah, like she's kind of like lost her voice a little bit. Yeah, my God. <laughs> it's quite a voice. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I'll say. I'm here for it. This was that era. You have that run, and I'm not going to list every single credit, but Garden State, Closer, Revenge of the Sith, V for Vendetta, Hotel Chevalier, Brothers, Hesher, Black Swan. Uh huh. Oscar. Doesn't seem like since then she's been on that kind of a run anymore. The gaps are longer. The projects are not as good. Yeah. She's in a few movies that when you go through her IMDb, you're like, oh my God, I forgot about this. Jane got a gun or whatever. No and it has attached. like less than a five on IMDb.
4: Is that it? Is it No Strings Attached, the one she's in? Or I always mix up the Mila Kunis one. Yes, it it's like No Strings thing. Attached.
3: Okay. <laughs> Although that was probably filmed before true. she actually that was, won the Oscar. Right, that was around 2010 or something, right? Yeah. yeah. Lucy in the Sky. That's I right. mean, there's yeah. just been some real swings and misses. This was her peak, that buildup I just read. That well, seven yeah. Year I mean, run. it was a
4: good run. I think it really solidified her as a star. Her name still carries a weight to it, I think.
3: Jack consents, nevertheless. He then hurriedly attempts to tidy the room. Pausing to play the opening bars of the song Where Do You Go To, My Lovely by Peter Sarstead on such his a stereo system. Such and a runs catchy path. Yeah. I think we've already covered it because of the stuff in Darjeeling, but uh-huh. Wes Anderson and music, it's always a home run. A few of his films haven't gone there as much because they're more period pieces. And so he doesn't really dive into the music as much with Moonrise Kingdom or. Grand Budapest Hotel, but it's one of the things that really dominate his early movies.
4: Definitely. Heavily with the kinks.
3: Jack is again lying on the bed, now in a gray suit. Hearing a knock, he starts the song playing again before opening the door to Rhett. I like how she brings him flowers. Natalie Portman still growing her hair out from V for Vendetta. After staring at him for several seconds, Rhett breaks the silence by asking what music is playing. (laughs) Receiving no response, she steps into the room and presents Jack with a bouquet of flowers. When she moves to kiss him on the mouth, he turns his head away, and they embrace instead. He closes the door and asks how she found him. She replies, it wasn't actually that hard. She moves around the room, browsing through his possessions, brushes her teeth with his toothbrush, and declines to take the bath he had run for her.
4: The whole thing about how she found him, when she calls, she doesn't ask what hotel you he's at obviously yeah. she's calling the hotel but she just asked what room you're in right you get the sense that he was definitely setting this up in some way that she's gonna come there
3: oh for sure yeah yeah i think that we all have had experience totally with toxic relationships <laughs> and in a way even though they don't actually have sex yet in this short we all are familiar with how these dying relationships the one currency that remains is sex it just uh-huh. becomes this thing where you've already broken up yet something happens and then there's expectations either from one or both and then it becomes awkward but you do it anyway and then you do regret it and yes then, yeah it's it's a whole thing <laughs> i think that this scene between these two really captures that vibe well definitely Stepping back into the bedroom, Rhett turns to face Jack and confronts him, asking slowly, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Jack motions for her to join him on the bed, and at her prompting, he reveals in the ensuing conversation that he has been living in the hotel room for more than a month, and that he had left to escape their relationship. This is something you already pointed out, but... It's kind of fun to have that unexplained decadence just living in a hotel room in Paris for more than a month.
4: Ah, It's a dream.
3: You don't really know how or what the situation is, how that could be possible, but you just sort of go along with it. You're like, okay, it is more fun to write fiction about people who could be able to do that rather than explaining why they're able to do it. This is our first look at the luggage with the initials JLW, which will feature prominently in the Darjeeling Limited. And as we said, this is all about control. Jack controls this environment entirely. That's why he's living there. He's able to stage the room in a very specific way. And if you pay attention to the way that these shots are framed, it's often him that stands out. Right. Everything else is like a Stanley Kubrick perfect mirror image. And then he's the one thing. On the bed that stands out. It's like, well, if he wasn't there, this would be a perfect... Right. And he's sort of not fitting in. And then, of course, now we have Rhett introduced. Everything feels very real and downright poignant in a way that would prove to be somewhat rare going forward in Wes Anderson's work. Agree. As I said, there is that line, that delineation with the scripts he co-wrote with Owen Wilson, the first three films, which I think have a different humanity than what would come later. And he wrote this script by himself, which is something he doesn't do really ever. It seems like he usually co-writes with Roman Coppola, or I know he wrote with Noah Baumbach at one point, and Owen Wilson with the early films. But yeah, this is all human emotion just because it's so contained in one space. There's really nothing else you can do.
4: And it's effective. You can feel the darkness. You can feel the toll that this relationship has taken on this guy.
3: We don't know a ton about these characters at this point, but we don't really have to. We know just enough. It's a perfectly contained short story. I would say that Portman does a lot of the heavy lifting, emoting like crazy with that voice sounding worn, almost cracking, looking seductive, but also exhausted. Definitely. She's like rocking the toothpick. In a weird way, it all feels inevitable. Like, this had to happen. The wounds are not healed. Uh Uh-huh. And so they have to have this... Encounter. ...moment, this confrontation, whatever you want to call it. It just had to happen. They lie back on the bed looking at one another before being interrupted by the arrival of room service. Once alone again, the two kiss, and Jack begins to undress Rhett. They have an uncomfortable exchange about not having slept with other people. And when Jack notices bruises on her arm after undressing her further, Rhett chooses not to comment on them. Yeah. Lying on top of him, she tells Jack that she does not want to lose his friendship, that she loves him, and never meant to hurt him.
4: One of the best parts.
3: He responds coldly that he will never be her friend, but holds her when she embraces him.
2: Have you slept with anyone?
3: No. Have you?
0: No. That was a long pause.
2: I guess it doesn't really matter.
1: No, it doesn't.
2: You've got bruises on your body. Whatever happens in the end, I don't want to lose you as my friend. I promise. I will never be your friend. No matter what. Ever. we fuck i'm going to feel like shit tomorrow that's okay with me i love you i never hurt you on purpose I don't
3: care. Where do you go to my lovely starts again, and Jack offers to show Rhett his view of Paris. There's a lot to get to here. Natalie Portman, this was her first nude scene, and she would later say that she regretted doing it, not because of the project itself, but just how things go, yeah, and how it ended up online, although... (laughs) You know, she was like, it ended up on porn sites or what? I'm like, what porn site is she talking about? <laughs> you can see her butt. I don't know if that would be porn. Yeah. But I get what she meant. Just the whole thing where right. people take the nude scenes and then put them wherever. Although this was even before Reddit. I was going to say,
4: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's gone like a million times down that road now.
3: The bruises are interesting because they sort of speak to a whole... You're like what story, the story we don't is know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. I think they're supposed to symbolize pain. Yeah. And how again she is sort of this interloper in this world. She's coming in and representing the outside world which is unpredictable and there's pain and there's anger. And the
4: chaos thing like you
3: mentioned too, like Yeah, you can't just out of control. Control what's going on out there. But in his little world he's trying to insulate himself from pain and uncertainty and all those things it's all hilarious she says if we fuck i'm gonna feel like shit tomorrow and he says i'm okay with that (laughs) (laughs) it really is all about sadness sex which as i said is sort of that thing that happens sometimes when the relationship is over but you still sort of see each other and then something bad happens inevitably and you all regret it and then Then that's it (laughs) yeah You need to close that chapter or whatever. (laughs) Rhett is perched against an armoire. Jack approaches and covers her naked body with the yellow bathrobe, and the two move towards the window after they step out on the balcony. Jack draws a toothpick from his pocket and hands it to Rhett with an upward nod, which she reciprocates. After looking out for another few seconds, she claps his neck lightly, and they step back inside, and it ends. That's the end of the short. Dialogue between Jack and Rhett is later recounted by Jack to his brothers at the close of the Darjeeling Limited in the form of an excerpt from a short story he has written. And Natalie Portman as Rhett has a brief cameo in the feature.
4: And that's why they should always be paired together, the short and the feature, because it works as like this bookend, you know?
3: That's true, and I agree with that, but I also think it's kind of cool to be able to piece what the fuck she's doing at the end of the movie yeah, together yeah. because she's wearing the robe that he right. wears during the movie. They both say hotel chevalier. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you would know you would be able to pick up like, oh, that's his ex girlfriend because yeah. she's got the perfume on the drinking the bloody desk Mary. And everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although the the dialogue right. part would be less connected, but I think because of the Criterion Blu-ray and and all of the home video releases and whatnot, i I think people can have that option to discover that stuff if they actually care enough about this movie so now let's transition to the feature film itself the Darjeeling Limited it's not really about epiphanies it's about thinking you've had an epiphany or willing yourself to have an epiphany that's a quote from Matt Zoller Seitz a film critic whose career has taken off in part because of his writing about Wes Anderson I have his book over there okay but this is from the Criterion Blu-ray I pulled that quote from gotcha. on one of the bonus features and I th- I found that to be like a pretty good summation of what the movie really ends up being
4: yeah and it totally hits for me the francis character being the worst offender of trying to create these moments by having a laminated itinerary of what they're going to do to somehow reach this spiritual catharsis
3: yeah his whole approach seems to be antithetical to what they're trying to accomplish in the first place. And there's sort of this glaring obliviousness to the way he approaches this trip and what he thinks might happen. But ultimately, it's something that you can't just... That's right. ...force to happen. I do think that by the end of the film, you could point to maybe one moment as the closest they come to some kind of an epiphany. But I also think that there's some hilarity in the mirror imaging of the film and how the end of the film mirrors the beginning of the film. And you realize they really didn't change that much. (laughs) (laughs) Despite everything that happens over the duration of the film, they're kind of the same people and they're kind of doing the same things. Yeah. yeah. But they did manage to shed some of the baggage. We'll get into this more as we go, but I do think this movie, there are times where it's, A little heavy-handed with the imagery and symbolism. Sure. (laughs) It's just beating you over the head with it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The film opens on an unidentified businessman played by Bill Murray in his desperate attempt to catch a train in India.
4: Bill Murray, of course, in many of the Wes Anderson movies, although this one unique being that he has almost no lines.
3: Yeah. I'm trying to think, is there one that he's in less than this? Other than Bottle Rocket, which he's not in it at all.
4: I wouldn't think. Nothing comes to mind.
3: It's close with Grand Budapest. Oh, that's true, yeah. But I do think he has lines.
4: Right. In <laughs> this one, I think all he says is, that's my train.
3: The train is called the Darjeeling Limited. He tries to chase down the train on foot, but he is ultimately beaten out by a younger man, played by Adrian Brody. The younger man is able to hop aboard while the businessman is left behind and This Time Tomorrow by the Kinks starts playing. Bill Murray filmed for a day and a half but stuck around India for a whole month afterward. The train sequences in the film were filmed on an actual moving train in India that they rented. Oh, wow. We'll talk more about this fucking luggage as we go, but (laughs) this younger man is carrying these... Bags, which if you have watched Hotel Chevalier, you'll recognize as matching the one in Jack's hotel room.
4: Got like the monogram letters on it.
3: The businessman often is said to be symbolic of the deceased father Uh missing out on this journey. I really don't know that there's any better explanation for what the symbolism would be. Yeah, I mean, even from the first
4: time I saw it, I took it that he was supposed to be a representation of their dad.
3: I think we can pretty much leave it at that just because as we said I mean he's really only in the film very briefly here at the beginning and then at the end and that's what it feels like to me.
4: Yeah and I know the luggage thing is a big part of this message and there's symbolism tied to it but the reality of carrying around this much luggage is absolutely insane.
3: Yeah there's a certain absurdity to it that I'll touch on more later but you have to really wonder what's even in these bags. I know. (laughs) The younger man Arriving late to the train is Peter Whitman. Peter reunites with his brothers, Francis, played by Owen Wilson, and Jack, who we've already met in Hotel Chevalier, both of whom are already on board. The three have not seen each other since their father's funeral a year earlier. Peter was specifically written with Adrian Brody in mind, and the brothers are all supposedly named after Francis Ford Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, and Jack Nicholson.
4: Oh, wow. That's cool.
3: Francis, head and face wrapped in bandages and walking around with a limp, <laughs> yeah. has recently survived a near-fatal motorcycle accident and thus wishes to reconcile with his brothers on a journey of spiritual self-discovery, as he puts it, become brothers like we used to be.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love when he's explaining what happened to him. And he's going through the story about getting in this accident. And he's like, I was driving home. And then he like looks off. I live alone now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> he's talking a mile a minute. And he's already assuming a leadership role, which Jack seems fairly receptive to. But Peter, not so much. Yeah.
4: Well, Jack's role is definitely the one. What I think he's the youngest brother, right? He definitely can be pulled aside by either of them. Yes. By either of the older ones when a faction needs to be built.
3: He's got itineraries and schedules, so he's approaching this so-called journey of self-discovery in a way that seems totally counterproductive to the whole idea. There's a lot of micromanagement going on. He's brought his assistant, Brendan, who he claims that we're never going to see, but then we do see...
4: Almost immediately.
3: (laughs) Owen Wilson placed a small lime in his shoe to achieve the constant limp while filming... And yes. He's laying it on very thick. The whole accident, living alone, oh, yeah. his sadness, and the nerves start fraying very quickly. He starts ordering for people. There's just like lots of little details. Like they're sitting at the diner car to yeah. order dinner. He starts ordering for everyone.
4: I think that one of the things I enjoy about the script is how much is spent like building up the jokes. Yeah. Like
3: something happens to then have a payoff line for it. The brothers have differing receptions to the prospect of reading Jack's short story. Francis, who you seemingly have just built up sympathy for because of his story, is the one who doesn't want to read it. And you're like, well, why is he being an asshole? Yeah, yeah. And then you find out they're all kind of assholes. They're completely selfish, narcissistic people, which does tend to be the most fun to write. Definitely. And put in these types <laughs> yeah. of situations. They're all enjoying various Indian painkillers, different kinds of medicine that they <laughs> yeah. got without prescriptions. You'll notice throughout much of the film, and then especially up towards the top here, that Peter has been collecting their father's items, glasses, razor, etc.
4: Much to the chagrin of Francis. Yeah. Legally, those glasses belong to all three of us.
3: <laughs> Very early on, Jack makes his intentions known with a young woman aboard the train who works on the train. He says, I want that stewardess. They call her Sweet Lime. Her name ends up being Rita. She's played by Amara Karan, or Karan, who... This is her first movie. I don't really know what you would call her. Is she a stewardess? I don't know what that would be on a train.
4: Yeah, I don't know what the preferred term is. Train hostess.
3: But one of the big things that causes a lot of tension and drama between the brothers is these secrets. Peter's wife is pregnant, for example, and she's nearly due. Oh, and he yeah. tells Jack, but says, don't tell Francis. <laughs> Jack tells Peter that he's got his own ticket out of there in case things go south. I yeah, guess. yeah. But he doesn't want him to tell Francis.
4: And there's a part at some point in the movie when Francis is like, it's important that we don't splinter into fractions or it's crucial <laughs> that we don't split. It's already happened like so many times.
3: Francis, meanwhile, is covertly searching for their mother, Patricia, whom the brothers have not seen in many years. With the help of his assistant, Brendan, Francis draws up a strict itinerary for the trip and then confiscates his brother's passports to prevent them from bailing early after learning about Jack's potential alternate plans. Jack makes his move on Rita, who also seems to be in a relationship with the chief steward, a guy that will butt heads with the brother's time and again throughout Definitely. their journey here. Where's those nuts
2: at? I got, it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Good evening, Mr. Whitman, how can I help you? Is it possible for us to get some more of those savory snacks, please? Of course, can I offer you anything else? Um, I don't think so. I'll be right back. I forgot something.
0: with me in the bathroom.
3: was thinking about the character of Rita a lot because on the surface you may wonder why she would be immediately seduced by Jack. Jason Schwartzman, he's rocking the mustache, he's a good-looking guy, Definitely. you can kind of buy it, but yeah, yeah. she has a boyfriend and she just goes with this immediately and you're thinking, "Well, what is the deal?" But I do think that they are able to convey enough about her character in the very limited amount of time that they give her to talk where you definitely believe that she's bored out of her mind Oh yeah, living on this train, this being her job all the time. That's
4: right. This is the life. Come on. You understand someone wanting to break out of this.
3: She may not want to throw away her whole life for Jack, but you can kind of see why his boldness... Is appealing to her because it's something new and exciting
4: plus he's got a weird thing that makes him stand out he's wearing a suit but is consistently barefoot <laughs> <laughs> you'd be like what's up with this
3: guy he always smells like another woman's perfume oh
4: yeah well that's a
3: move <laughs> and he also likes to just start playing songs on an ipod <laughs> <laughs> at one of the stops jack is checking Rhett's messages on her answering machine and peter <laughs> asks could she be gaslighting you? And he's like, yeah. What does that mean?
4: I know, but I do love that that's a move that's happening.
3: It's just like, What a
4: reveal that he's got the passcode to her answering machine and he's checking her messages.
3: And she also put her perfume in his suitcase so that yeah, he would so these find two it on the train. Just so involved with each other's lives still. And so his response is to shatter the perfume in their compartment oh, on yeah. the train. Which. Has to be the worst idea. No kidding. And I feel like it's not brought up enough. It's only brought up. Yeah, by that the chief should be a once recurring thing. Yeah. What
4: is that? Because it would linger forever.
3: Oh yeah, it would be so strong and yeah. horrible. The three brothers also continue to grieve over their father's death. All three carry many items of luggage marked with his initials, along with other personal items that belong to him. The train takes them through the Indian countryside into various Hindu temples. At one stop, Jack buys pepper spray and Peter buys a venomous cobra.
4: Which does seem insane.
3: I just wrote fucking dickheads. Yeah, really. I know. (laughs) This is what they buy in India, pepper (laughs) spray and a cobra. I know. It was kind of annoying me that they kept calling it poisonous. Everyone was saying poisonous. It's not really the right word.
4: Okay. Venomous?
3: Yeah, poisonous is, I think, when you eat it and it's Yeah, poisoned. yeah. Okay. I think. I th- <laughs> it was jumping out to me. All right. But they're going through the motions. They're forcing it. Definitely. They're kneeling at this temple trying to have this moment of enlightenment, and then they're distracted. Francis yeah. asking Peter, is that my belt in the <laughs> middle of it? <laughs> <laughs> I do like that they start calling Peter rubby. Because oh, he's constantly rubbing his temples because he's wearing his dad's prescription sunglasses. Which is
4: also insane and and would give you
3: like terrible migraines. And then they start spilling each other's secrets <laughs> to each other and Francis seems baffled by it and wondering why. And, and the only answer is we don't trust each other, that's which right. is what they say. Jack and Rita spend some more time together and that's when he plays Where Do You Go To, My Lovely... And you can tell that this is just his move That's with right. women. Yeah, Her mascara is smeared. It seems as if she's been crying, and she says, I've got to get off this train. I don't think that they ever actually have sex, which is something that I didn't realize oh, the really? first times that I watched So the
4: in the bathroom, they don't have sex?
3: Well, she says, don't come into me. Yeah. Which I took to mean, don't put your thing in me.
4: I see. I thought she meant, like, don't,
3: don't. blow it in me. <laughs> I know, but I think with her British accent and the whole thing, I I, see. I I think that that's what she meant. Was
4: Wow, okay. Yeah. All right, I'm seeing this in a whole new light now.
3: Either that or he's really like a quick draw McGraw.
4: Well, we don't know. It's a cut. We don't know how much time was spent in there. I will say he wasn't looking very sweaty or anything. Her hair was not disheveled.
3: Of course, in the most predictable moment of all time, the cobra escapes from its box. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that.
4: We think a snake may have gotten on board.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The chief steward recaptures it and tells the three brothers he's kicking them off the train at the next stop. Francis begs for another chance, and it seems as if they're going to be allowed to stay, but things quickly go awry. The train somehow goes off course, stopping for a while to try and determine its location. It's then when Francis tells Jack and Peter that they are headed towards their mother who he's tracked down to the foot of the Himalayas, where she's living as a nun.
4: Which, of course, doesn't help their whole trust issue thing, since they feel like they've been tricked into coming here.
3: Yeah, Jack and Peter are not particularly thrilled with this information and make it abundantly clear that they would not have come had they known that this was the point of the trip. Is it clear how long
4: she's been absent from their lives? No, not as specific, but it's been years. Right. I just wasn't sure if it was supposed to be when they were like little kids or at some point like later in their.
3: I didn't adult get. I lives. didn't get little kids. Yeah. Okay.
4: I wasn't ever thinking that either. But a lot of things that you'll read will be about like the abandonment issues, and obviously it's like a big thing that she didn't come back for their dad's funeral. But
3: but that's sort of the unique thing about Wes Anderson movies is that there's always this arrested development. True. That is true. Yeah. Because even in Royal Tenenbaums, they're all adults. Right. But they right. seem to still be children yeah, in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's sort of how they are in this film that's too. Right. Yeah. I've seen people say the Whitmans could be relatives of the Tenenbaum kids. Because yeah, they're yeah. all sort of that same upper middle class right. to upper class but mentally Yeah. Prolonged adolescence. Yeah. Frozen in time uh-huh. and in like another in childhood or something to that effect. But it's unclear. It could be when they were teenagers or in their formative years of some kind because, yeah, I do think that a lot of the themes of the Darjeeling Limited have to do with not only life and death and mortality and the fear of death, but also, yes, abandonment and loss and mourning and grief and those things too. And you would have to imagine that It has been a significant amount of time. It's interesting because
4: I think my impression was just always that it was at some point when these dudes are all adults. And I think I just think that because of the whole, like, oh, stay together for the kids type thing. So instinctually, I go to, she stayed in this marriage until, like, they were all adults and then, you know, went off to pursue this calling of hers.
3: I just think that if it had been since they were little kids, then I just don't know if they could have treated it this lightly.
4: Right, and I think like the whole confrontation part would be more than just about, why didn't you come to Dad's funeral? I think it would be like, why did you
3: leave us? Yes. The brothers also attempt enlightenment again at another Hindu temple, seemingly trying to will something to happen inside themselves.
4: It does all seem to be driven by Francis. It actually is surprising at times that Jack and Peter go along with the things that they do.
3: Well, it makes you wonder what their relationship really was when they were younger, and their dynamic was probably more of Francis being the leader and both of them being followers, and that Peter standing up for himself is not always 100% a thing, Right, that it comes and goes, and that this is more reverting to their true nature, which is that Francis is kind of like their leader, and they more or less go along with it until they don't, and Yeah, yeah. They'll come back, and then it sort of repeats itself. That's right. But ultimately, you can't force an epiphany. Jack pursues Rita some more, but she confesses that she has a boyfriend, though she seems desperate for change. I've always viewed this scene a
4: little bit, because this is where he goes to actually see her in the back cabinet area yeah, where she Yeah, and she out. does
3: say she's going to break up with him soon. Yeah.
4: I don't know. It's weird, because it kind of seems like the door may be open for a hookup here if the bell isn't wrong calling her but i don't think i used to interpret it that way i think i used to interpret it that she was kind of past this whole jack thing now the moment for them had come and gone
3: i think that if they don't get themselves kicked off the train that he could have probably there's more had more going on there but clearly he's got to work through some issues with his ex first totally <laughs> Tensions continue to build as Jack and Peter become infuriated with Francis's controlling behavior. He's big on lists and making promises. Oh. A, sound familiar? We'll do this. And B <laughs> we'll say Dude, this. And that, C this.
4: The payoff to like all of Francis's quirks is great though.
3: The atmosphere finally comes to a head and the three have a physical altercation on the train that spills out of their compartment distressing the other passengers (laughs) i
1: love
4: you too but i'm gonna miss you in the face is that
0: dad's razor yeah can i say something what you don't have permission to take his property that belongs to all of us and use it for yourself as if it's yours jack agrees with that right jack plus dad would have hated it why that's my opinion i know him well That's a terrible thing to say. Well, I don't mean it to be. I just don't want you to get the feeling that you're better friends with him than we are or something weird like that. And also, you can't leave your wife just because she's pregnant. Jack agrees with that, too. Right, Jack? Stop including me. I was his favorite. He
2: told me to have blood all over him laying in the street right before he died.
0: How is that supposed to make us feel? I want my passport back. Francis?
2: Yeah? Here's your bell.
1: Stop!
2: You don't love me! Yes, I do! I love you too, but I'm gonna mace you in the uh, face! Uh, Stop! Oh, 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 oh,
1: oh,
2: I had to do it! Yeah, hey, you this. Oh, Stop including me! Ah. Oh,
3: Is all over this fucking belt, which I always think is a funny thing in these Wes Anderson movies. There's always these absurd items of clothing that have some sentimental astronomical value. value. Yeah. No, oh, literal value. Right, he says true. it costs yeah. three thousand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Then he's like, "I need the belt back. It's far too valuable." <laughs> 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 After he already gave him the belt, but the jacket that Owen Wilson is wearing in Royal Tenenbaums at one point.
4: Well, even Francis's shoe that gets stolen in this, he says they're like $6,000 loafers or
3: yeah. whatever. it's always this absurd amount of money. Peter is using their father's razor, and when he's confronted by Francis, he says that their father told him, Peter, that he was their father's favorite. That was his favorite whenever he was dying, although he later says that that's not really true. That he didn't understand what he was saying. Yeah. And then while they're fighting, Jack breaks out that pepper spray that he bought, and he says, I'm going to mace you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Running around spraying mace throughout the And by the, the way,
4: seemingly holding it for just an indeterminate amount of time. It just feels like forever. <laughs> it seems like it could have been just like a quick spray, and he's just like
3: holding the
1: button down.
3: The chief steward has finally had enough, and folks, uh huh. he doesn't even know about Rita. That's right. Oh, boy. And he throws them off of the train with their ridiculous amount of luggage. <laughs> so long, sweet lime. So let's talk a little bit about the luggage, which, of course, on a f- surface level, is another thing that's antithesis of the trip's purpose. They're doing a trip where, by all rights, you should arrive with the clothes on your back. Right. And that's what you should bring on this journey. Yeah you don't need anything else. You don't need all of the comforts of home. You don't need all of these different things that you would put into your luggage. But if you notice, by the way, all three carry around those bags, tons of them, and yet all of them remain in the same same clothes the (laughs) entire movie. So what the fuck are even in those bags?
4: Well, you definitely think Peter's carrying around a lot of Dad's possessions.
3: There are a lot of things in the Darjeeling Limited that are pretty heavy-handed with the symbolism and... Obviously, the luggage isn't hard to figure out. It's got their dad's initials on it. It's weighing them down. They're carrying it around. Another word for luggage would be baggage. That's right. They're carrying around all this baggage. It doesn't take a genius to really decipher some of the things in this film, but I think that that's okay, too. Not all of symbolism has to be so layered and deep that it takes a PhD to figure it out or anything, but it's not just that. There's there's a lot of things in this movie that are... A little bit beating you over the head with it, but it's still very funny. Brendan subsequently quits and returns to the train after giving (laughs) the boys a letter from their mother. Yeah, who would have thought that because of Chris Rock and the Smiths that alopecia would become such a hot-button topic in recent days? But here we were in 2007 (laughs) with the alopecia jokes (laughs) in the Darjeeling Limited. Jack has his farewell with Rita... Thanks for using me, which is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. (laughs) Definitely. Did you get mace too?
0: No, I'm crying.
2: What's wrong with you? Let me think about that. I'll tell you the next time I see you. Sure, tell me then. Thanks for using me.
1: You're welcome.
3: Goodbye, Rita.
0: So long, sweet lime.
3: He's really got that game down cold. I love (laughs) it. Thanks for using And she's like, you're welcome. (laughs) And then they end up throwing rocks at the train. (laughs) I do love that. That's like quietly one of my favorite
4: parts because (laughs) it kind of seems like they're just going to walk away. And then they think about it for a second. (laughs) That guy pops his head out the window and they just start chasing and chucking rocks at it. (laughs) Leaving gracefully. You got to love it.
3: The letter from their mother indicates that they've arrived at a bad time and should not come. However, The implication seems to be that she does not want to see them. Yeah. It also introduces the man-eating tiger, (laughs) which, in a weird way, works as a symbol of death, a Grim Reaper-like figure that will stalk the rest of the film, even though we don't really see it except for the the quote-unquote dream train sequence. Right. At night, on their own, the three brothers attempt a ceremony involving feathers but can't seem to get on the same page.
0: Let's get high. I'm sorry. Me too. I wasn't trying to aim for your face. doesn't matter, it's already demolished. Let's just go home. She doesn't want to see us anyway. You don't think so? Not even on some primordial level? No. She's been disappearing all our lives. We weren't raised to be treated like that. Just not done. Maybe this is how it's supposed to happen. Could all be part of it. Maybe this is where the spiritual journey ends. You read the instructions, right? Okay, let's do it. I'm gonna go over here. Yeah, get, that's good. Right. Get on the rock. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Peter, you got. Yeah. yeah, okay. Everybody ready? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay,
0: that's it. Zip.
1: Okay. All right.
0: Which direction did yours go? What do you mean? Your feathers, mine blew towards the mountains. That's not right. It's not supposed to get blown away. You're supposed to blow on it and then bury it. I didn't get that. I still have mine. You guys didn't do it right. I asked you if you read the instructions. You did it wrong.
4: I do think Francis dejected after this is hilarious. You didn't read the instructions. I asked you if you read the instructions.
3: There is a growing sense of giving up. And then Jack says... I wonder if we would have been friends in real life, (laughs) which is one of the most Wes Anderson type lines you could ever come up with where you know what he means. But at the Uh same time, it's just almost too cutesy. (laughs) The brothers decide to leave India, go their separate ways and presumably never return, at least according to Peter. After hiking through the wilderness the next morning, the brothers spot three young boys fall into a river while attempting to pull a raft across it. Initially mocking them, by the way. <laughs> look at these assholes. Francis says, look at these assholes. They spring into action, jumping into the water to help. Jack and Francis rescue two of the boys, but Peter fails to save the third. I think for the
4: first few times I watched this, it was like hard to figure out what was happening with Peter and this other kid. That he just couldn't figure out how to resolve the situation. But I guess it's just that he was, like, tangled up in the raft. And then once they... Well, yeah, they once it flips over, he kind of, like, goes down over a little waterfall, like, into the rocks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Look, Wes Anderson does not shoot a lot of action sequences.
4: Yeah. But I think I think he does a pretty good job with this. I don't know. This, to me, like, is a little bit smoother than everything that happens with... Kingsley in <laughs> Life Aquatic.
3: I have a lot of conflicted feelings about this section of the film. I don't know that I love it. It feels weird to me to use the death of a child, really, to further the story of these three douchebags. I get the purpose of it, and then, of course, eventually we're going to flash back to their own Oh yeah, reconciling with death, with their father's death and everything there. And I do think that the flashback is effective, and I I get that. But it just feels weird tonally for this type of movie where we're laughing at the dumb, crazy shit they say and just how big of buffoons they are. And then you have this very somber moment with wailing, and it just feels weird. I don't know if it fully works for me.
4: We wanted to find something that was like a real moment that was going to be like unpredictable for these dudes to be involved in, but I don't know. if This is what he went with. <laughs>
3: I well, mean, I know, I know it's know? what he went
4: with. Uh, I never really had a problem with it, but when you phrase it like that, we're talking about a dead child here. It's you know, I'm it just really feels like a weird villain.
3: for this type of movie. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's done in a way that's not tasteful or anything like that. Uh huh. But it ends up feeling like it sticks out in a weird way. I don't know. Okay. They carry the body back to the boys' village, where Francis, Peter, and Jack spend the night and are treated very kindly. I <laughs> there is this language barrier where it doesn't seem as if anybody speaks English. Right. I would be a little worried carrying a dead boy back to the village. Totally. That they're you, not going to understand what happened. Right. Right. You really. I mean, you're relying on the other, other kids. kids to explain. The brothers are about to leave the village, loading all of their luggage onto a departing bus when they are invited to the funeral and decide to stay. Once again, this whole luggage situation. A half-hour endeavor. It's while attending that funeral when they experience what feels like a repressed flashback, all three of them, plus Peter's wife, Alice, heading to their father's funeral. And it's a jarring cut because at the funeral for the boy we're hearing strangers by the kinks it's one of the traditional slow motion sequences uh-huh. i believe which of, of which there are 3 it yeah, goes yeah. to that well often in this film and then on the drum beat it just sort of stops abruptly and then we're in the back of a limousine and you can tell that jack's hair is shorter and francis, francis doesn't have a fucked up face yeah, yeah. and everything seems to be different And they're in New York City. Peter demands that they stop on the way to the funeral to pick up their father's Porsche from the repair shop.
4: frantic about the whole thing, though. Obviously being irrational.
3: Even though the car is not ready. And that's something we can circle back to a few times here, which is, like, a recurring theme. Something being in progress or not finished yet. And, yes, there's, like, this obsession with objects and ritual and details that, seemingly keep reality at a distance so that they don't really have to fully engage with what's happening because now they're making the funeral about this idea that they have to be there in this car (laughs) and that they'll be able to get in this car when it's over Uh and but it's almost inexplicable i know because you're thinking why i don't know what's happening and the guy at the repair shop is saying that they're waiting on a part and the car's not ready yet and yet they won't take that as an answer and you're thinking what is this obsession with this car and what is happening and
4: things are starting to spiral out of control quickly because when Alice calls in is like they want to get this show on the road there's another service after this like you guys need to get here you're fucking this up
3: it's revealed that their father's death was a result of him being struck by a taxi their mother did not attend the funeral obviously death and loss Loom large in the Darjeeling Limited, but so does the reality of everyday life.
4: And the way the flashback sequence ends is Alice basically telling Francis that she's not coming, their mom's not coming, and then he tells Jack and Peter that she is. Or that he doesn't know. Yeah, he doesn't know if she's there yet. That's what he says. But I also think it's possible that they didn't make the funeral. It's not clear, but...
3: I think that they did. I think that would have been mentioned in some way.
4: That was just the way she's like, they want to start in like 10 minutes. It's just fighting with the guy on the phone in the background. Yeah. I don't know.
3: Back in the present, after the funeral, the brothers leave the village and head to the airport.
4: But they did have some moment, this feeling of community over this whole event.
3: And then there's no noticeable change. Right. Because Francis is still a control freak. (laughs) He's telling them how they're going to divide up the minutes when they're waiting for this yeah, plate. Yeah. change cannot be forced or at the very least change is slow. And Definitely. I think that that's one of the messages of the film is that even by the end end of the film, the very end, they're kind of still the same but you have to think that they've improved a little bit, but that change is slow and that you may not notice it at first and that is sort of grounding it more in reality and that's how so. people really are. Yeah. They all make phone calls at the airport. Francis calls Brendan to beg him to come back to work. Peter calls Alice, who he is just telling for the first time that he is in India. Which I don't Shocking. really know how that makes yeah. sense, but okay. Where did she think he was? That also I don't feels know. like
4: I know she's like about to give birth, but this feels like divorce is on the table. <laughs> Good God!
3: Well, he says he always assumed that he would get a divorce again, and relatable. now the child is ruining it. Yeah. <laughs> And Jack, once again, checks Rhett's messages and finds out that she wants him to meet her in Italy. Francis gives the belt back to Peter once again. (laughs) Kind of acting like it's for the first time, though. It's for me and Jack. (laughs) In the bathroom, Francis cuts the bandages off of his head and face for the first time, and we actually see his face.
4: And it's in rough shape.
3: His brothers are both kind of taken aback by it, and he says, I guess I've still got some more healing to do. There is, again, a recurring heavy-handedness to the subtext. It skirts the line in terms of even still being Sure, but I think that
4: line works pretty good as a joke, though, too. (laughs) Because his
3: face is just so messed up, and he's taking all these bandages off. And it plays into the whole in-progress thing, which I just mentioned with the car, but that will come up later even with, Jack's short story where it's not finished but he's written the ending and you know the whole thing it's sort of over and over that's how it works with these people as they are about to board the plane they stop it's a scene we can see but not hear the brothers spurred on by Francis decide to stay after all and go visit their mother this moment of spontaneity and instinct may be the closest they actually come to a true epiphany in the entire film this is where it feels like yeah they're acting on instinct rather than laminated itineraries yeah. and overthinking everything.
4: I will say, if I have complaints about this movie, it does start to feel a little clunky here because it feels like the airport scene is the end of the movie. I know we haven't had this confrontation and it would be missing something if it was the end of the movie, but it just feels that way. When they're in that bathroom scene and he's taking the bandages off, it feels like we're heading towards the end credits.
3: It's the longest 90-minute movie (laughs) imaginable, which sounds like an insult, but I don't really mean it to be insulting. It's just because there's a lot of false finishes here at the end where you think it's over. Well, that might actually tie into my feelings about what happens with the boy dying Yeah, yeah. because that feels like that should be the ending because how do you do anything after that? Well, yeah. That seems so dramatic and jarring. Then you're in an airport. You have the moment with Francis cutting the bandages off and then they're about to leave, and that feels like an ending. Yep. And then with literally 15 minutes left in the runtime of the film, you're now being introduced to their mother, Patricia, played by Angelica Houston. And then that has its own weird things that feel like endings. Yeah, yeah. With the dream train. And
4: yep. then there's still more after that. I know, because that, that's another part. The dream train does feel like it's going to hit the end credits right after that, right after the man-eating tiger.
3: When they arrive at the convent, their mother Patricia is surprised but overjoyed to see them. Francis admits out loud that his motorcycle accident was actually a suicide attempt.
4: To the surprised looks of his brothers, you guys can put that together. Yeah. They both kind of make
3: a look at him, like, they... "No, I, I oh, know, yeah, I know." Okay, I'm yeah. just saying, I don't know that I would have put that together yeah. necessarily.
0: What happened to your face? I smashed into a hill on
3: purpose on my motorcycle. I'm sorry to hear that. She mentions the tiger, which has eaten one of the sister's brothers, which they (laughs) laugh at at first, and then she says, no, no, I'm serious. (laughs) And then we see, and I think this is what you were alluding to earlier, that their mother acts exactly like Francis. Yeah, yeah. Orders... What they want for food, <laughs> makes Starts lists, the, list. <laughs> the promises that they're going to make. Let's make another agreement. <laughs> when she's confronted for not attending the funeral and abandoning them, she says, well, why don't we work this out without words? And they have this silent reconnecting with Which the song seems... Play With Fire by the Rolling yeah. Stones. And
4: It seems to have an impact. I'm not sure that it would for me, but the verbal confrontation wasn't going anywhere, though. That was clear.
3: It's almost like that 70s show yeah. with the camera circle. <laughs> like they're sitting around smoking they just pot in a joint <laughs> Red's basement. <laughs> I want to tell you about my son. What son? The one I'm going to have
0: next month. Well, you should be with Alice. You should have been at dad's funeral. So that's why you came here. We came here because we miss you. I miss you too. But why didn't you come to Dad's funeral? Because I didn't want to. uh, Why are we talking this way? What's wrong with us? We should be celebrating. What are you doing here? I live here. These people need me. What about us? You're talking to her. You're talking to someone else. You're not talking to me. I don't know the answers to these questions, and I don't see myself this way. Listen, I'm sorry we lost her father. We'll never get over it, but it's okay. There are greater forces at work. Yes, the past happened, but it's over, isn't it? Not for us. I told you not to come here. Maybe we could express ourselves more fully if we say it without words. Should we try that?
3: This is the dream train sequence that we've been alluding to, where we see the various characters and and inhabitants of this world, where it appears as if they're on a train, but it's not a real train. Yeah. And there's compartments on this mythical train that aren't really things that would be on an actual train, obviously. Right. I mean, it's like a hut from a village,
4: a luxury hotel room.
3: First, we see Rita. Then we see the chief steward who has the cobra, which he claims to have killed, which I think they threw in there to be like, well, yeah, he didn't really kill the cobra. Uh Then we see the two surviving boys from the river, and then Alice, pregnant with her little pots. Longtime Wes Anderson actor Kumar Pallana, who was just credited as old man. (laughs) Brendan, who seems to be on a plane, leaving India, I guess. Then we see Rhett, still wearing the Robe from Hotel Chevalier, perhaps still at Hotel Chevalier. I would like to think running up the tab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we see the businessman, played by Bill Murray, who missed the trip entirely. And then the tiger is last, watching over it all. Natalie Portman traveled to Jodhpur, India, for just 30 minutes of shooting and then ended up wandering around India for 10 days oh, wow. before leaving.
4: This movie definitely giving actors a a good opportunity to just hang out in India for a while.
3: It's as close to closure as they're going to be able to get because when Francis, Jack, and Peter awake in the morning, their mother is gone. They reattempt the ceremony with the one feather they still have, this time content to let each other do it their own way, a noticeable difference from the first time they tried it and were pissed about it not happening, (laughs) right? They decide not to wait for their mother to return and just leave. On their way out, Jack reads from his new short story, which contains dialogue from Hotel Chevalier.
0: I'm working on a new short story. I wrote the ending, but I don't know how it starts. Read us
2: what you got. Whatever happens in the end, she said, I don't want to lose you as my friend. He looked into her eyes. I promise I will never be your friend, no matter what, ever. Her voice cracked. If we fuck, I'm going to feel like shit tomorrow. That's okay with me, he said. He lifted her shirt over her head. I love you, she said. I never hurt you on purpose. He nodded. I don't care. He would not be going to Italy. That sound okay?
0: Yeah. It's hard for me to judge the ending without knowing the rest of it.
3: I like how mean you are.
0: The characters are all...
4: Thanks.
3: His short story furthers the unfinished theme
4: of course his recurring line of the characters are all fictional which one of the short stories from earlier we find out is the flashback
3: car scene yeah where they get their father's car yeah this time though he just says thanks yeah (laughs) i like how mean you (laughs) are it seems like jack's brothers are not big fans of Rhett. totally yeah
4: one of Francis's best lines. I got to say, I support this relationship not working out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's usually me talking to you. Absolutely. As they arrive at the train station, power man by the King's plays. They chase down this new train called Bengal Lancer. Much like Peter did at the start of the film, they gleefully discard all of their father's suitcases and bags to catch it. Of course, the obvious symbolism here being that they're finally shedding the baggage that they've been carrying. Oh, yeah. Whether you want to interpret that as grief, their own fucked up bullshit, the feelings they have towards each other. Their whole family dynamic, the loss of their dad. It's all of it. <laughs> the abandonment. Yeah. The grief. Whatever. The attachment issues, which seeming will seemingly will continue on. On board, Francis offers to return their passports, but is told instead to hold on to them. Francis says, let's go get a drink and smoke a cigarette, which is what he said at the beginning of the film when they're all together. You could look at it where they've caught this train, which is called Bengal, which is a tiger. They face their fears, which is death and mortality. Get it? Bengal? Lancer? And also the end of the film mirrors the beginning of the film, and you realize that they're not really all that different, but maybe they have shed that baggage that they've been carrying around.
4: I think one way or another, they've experienced something that's going to push them forward, even if it's only slightly.
3: Yeah, exactly. And there you go. End credits, and we're out. It's a very quick movie, like I said, although I I do think that it deceives you into feeling like it's longer because of the fake endings. Yeah. When I first realized that this film was like 90 minutes, I was stunned. I was literally stunned that it was 90 minutes.
4: know a lot of his movies are dialogue driven but the dialogue compared to any action sequences seems heavily slated to the dialogue side in this one
3: and what what are you saying that that makes it seem longer
4: i think so i think there's less things that break it up
3: yeah there's not a lot of set pieces yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so in lieu of recommendations we're gonna give our ranking of the ten. Wes Anderson feature films. For the purposes of this ranking, we are counting Hotel Chevalier and the Darjeeling Limited as one entity. Yes. Which may or may not affect things. I don't really know. But I do think that Hotel Chevalier, since it serves as a prologue, can be counted as part of it. I was a little bit surprised with how mine turned out. Like I said, I think that the bottom and the top are pretty much set in stone. And then The five in the middle are all kind of even, more or less, which I know sounds like a cop-out, but that's pretty much how it is. Okay. They're all pretty interchangeable, depending on which one I watched most recently (laughs) and whatnot. Yeah, I think that if we have any more thoughts on Darjeeling Unlimited, we can kind of include that in this countdown, because we'll kind of talk about each of them briefly, I guess.
4: How did you want to do this?
3: We'll alternate.
4: Okay. From number 10? Yeah. I take it? Okay. You want me to go first? Sure. All right. Number ten for me, Isle of Dogs. Yeah, me um, too. <laughs> just not much memorable for me. I did watch it a second time, and kind of felt the same way. He does some funny stuff with the stop motion, but I didn't even really think that many of the jokes in this one were that funny.
3: I saw it in the theater with you. I have had zero interest in rewatching yeah, yeah. it. I doubt that I ever will. I don't really care about stop motion animation. It yeah. just doesn't really do anything for me. And this movie was not entertaining to me at all. Right. Some people may disagree with that. I know that it it has a reasonable score on IMDb, just like all of his other films, but it just didn't work for me. It was not great.
4: Yeah, yeah. Now, I think I probably know what your number nine is, and we're probably going to be slightly different here. I have French Dispatch.
3: I do as well.
4: Oh, wow. Okay. I was thinking that for sure Fantastic Mr. Fox would be next for you.
3: No. The French Dispatch is almost as bad as Wild yeah. Dogs. It really didn't do much for me either. I know, again, this <laughs> <laughs> you look on IMDb and you think, well, this must be just as good as anything else he's done. And people do seem to like it. I don't know how they could even understand what the it third like story a, is. It like a
4: mess to me.
3: Yeah, the first two stories are fine. I liked the first one. Yeah. With Leah Seydoux. That was my favorite one. And uh, Benicio yes. Del Toro. The second one, I was sort of baffled by. The third one, I didn't even understand
4: it. Right. I'm with you.
3: I didn't even, even on know rewatch. what the story yeah. was. I just didn't find it appealing at all. And it has made me kind of nervous about the future of Wes Anderson films. Yeah. I don't have super high hopes for Asteroid City, but...
4: I know French Dispatch is this big thing, you know, about writing, and, like, obviously, like, the New Yorker is, like, a big influence on it in general, but all the stuff just seems, like, way overwritten. Like, it doesn't seem smooth, like, at all.
3: Yeah, and all humanity, which may have once existed in his early work, is long gone. Definitely.
4: Number eight, for me, I have Fantastic (laughs) Mr. Fox. I do
3: as well. (laughs) I was surprised, because I thought... At one
4: point, you had said to me that the stop motion ones would always be your yeah. You know, well, list.
3: I reconsidered. Those three are pretty much locked yeah. at the bottom for me.
4: I have actually had times in my life I have rewatched Fantastic Mr. Fox. There are definitely parts of it that made me laugh, like in a way that the other two didn't.
3: Yeah, and it is a very popular film of his now. Yeah, it was not a huge box office hit or anything, but I think it's gone on to have a bigger reputation. I think it's entertaining. Like I said, there's just a disconnect for me with the stop-motion animation stuff that just doesn't really appeal to me. But I can recognize that it's funny and it's well-written and the story is reasonably entertaining and everything. It's not for me, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Now, I will say we did have the exact same 10-9-8. I doubt we'll be aligned. <laughs> okay. Well, we might. Yeah. I don't know. But the next kind of stuff might be a little different. Seven, six, five, and four are more or less even for me. So four out of the ten, yeah, yeah, I would say are all kind of interchangeable. I feel like my top three are kind of locked in place now. I think you might be surprised at number three for me, but okay. seven through four are all interchangeable. I'll give my number seven. Go ahead, since we'll you mix it up, yeah, saying these. My number seven is Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. Now, if you would have asked me for this list back when we did Moonrise Kingdom, I think it would have probably been higher. Yeah. Like I said, though, <laughs> I can't stress this enough. <laughs> yeah. Seven through four are all pretty much even, and there's really nothing negative to say about it. I do yeah. enjoy the film a lot, and I'm glad we did it on the show. Well, it's just at this moment, that felt like number seven. To I me.
4: actually had Moonrise Kingdom lower in my overall list until we did it for the show, and revisiting it for the show... Us kind of talking through it it made me realize that I actually liked it more than I had thought.
3: Yeah, I think that after Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a completely fantasy world because yeah. there's no humans in it at all. And then, like I said, the two films that sort of serve as that delineation point with Life Aquatic and Darjeeling, your memory might start to trick you into thinking that Moonrise Kingdom is more twee and fantasy yeah. and hyper stylized than it actually is and there still is a lot of realness to the film and yeah I do like the sweet love story and it feels very innocent and
4: I do like it now at one point in my life not that long ago I mean it was the first five were my five favorite now I have life aquatic at number seven
3: I have life aquatic at number six so let's just talk about it now
4: I do think there is a ton of stuff in it that makes me laugh. Again, great music. Love all the like the David Bowie stuff.
3: It depends. I think sometimes when I have a lot of distance from watching it, yeah. it can start drifting down the list. But then when I watch it, sometimes it'll catch me and I'll get emotional by the end. Okay, yeah. It sort of just depends on the mood, I think.
4: Even though it has a death sequence in it and there is another cathartic moment in it, it feels more of a comedy even than the others of the first five.
3: Well, I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with Darjeeling Limited, where you have the death of Steve's partner at the beginning, yeah. which looms over like the father in Darjeeling, and then, not to spoil everything, but folks, come on. Yeah, yeah. And then you have Ned's death at the end of the film, which sort of mirrors the death of the kid in Darjeeling, and it's sort of bookended. And I do think the themes are very similar, and I think that he's still working out the same stuff in Darjeeling that he was trying to accomplish with life aquatic but the life aquatic for me who was more aware of these things than you were yeah, I, yeah i'm older right it represents a weird time because people loved royal tenenbaums and it was about as hot as a director could be at that moment okay. it was one of those like up-and-comer guys right. and yeah, so yeah. you're just due for that fucking backlash <laughs> yeah yeah and People were like, what the fuck is this stupid garbage? You know, <laughs> the movie bombs essentially, even though, like I said, box office wise, it did pretty much the same as Darjeeling, but because the budget was higher and the expectations were higher, it just was a weird time. And I think that the feelings on Life Aquatic have grown since then. Okay. Now people like it more than they did then. But that's sort of how all movies who had a big backlash when they sure. came out were treated. Where yeah, yeah. Later on, people were like, you know what, this isn't that bad kind of a thing. What's your number six, since that's my number six?
4: I have Grand Budapest Hotel here. Okay. Do you want to save commenting on that one?
3: No, we can talk about it.
4: Okay. I did really enjoy it in the theater. Obviously, another huge star-studded cast. So many people in this one. It was a, a one of these things where... It just felt drifting further from reality. Even though it's actors, it almost feels like a cartoon.
3: Yeah, it's very highly stylized. I will say that my opinion of Grand Budapest Hotel has only grown in the years since it was released. I actually probably like it a lot more now than I did in the theater. The thing that just really elevates it for me is the performance of Ray Fiennes, which
4: He is great. Honestly, might
3: be among the funniest of any performance in any Wes Anderson movie. I'm not saying the funniest, but it's among. And that's saying a lot because Bill Murray and Rushmore, right off the top of my head. Sure. Gene Hackman and Royal Tenenbaum's. Pretty much anyone in Royal Tenenbaum's. There's a lot of competition. And I think about how it was originally supposed to be Johnny Depp and. This isn't any comment on anything going on with Johnny Depp in recent years or anything to that effect, but I just think the movie wouldn't be half as good. Yeah. I don't think Johnny Depp's nearly as funny as Ray Finds is in this movie. I just don't think he would have been able to pull it off.
4: Probably not. But yeah, I also have not revisited. I think I've only ever watched it like once since the theater, so you know, it's possible that that's one that could grow on me even further, but I did really like it. It's halfway up my list, so it's not like
3: it. So my Number five, after the Life Aquatic and number six, going hand-in-hand is the Darjeeling Limited, which we just talked about. Uh I got to be honest, if Hotel Chevalier wasn't a part of it, it might have slipped a few spots. But being able to put that all together as one bigger story elevates it above Life Aquatic and Moonrise for me right now.
4: Yeah, I have it as my number four, so not far off. I definitely like it more than you. For me, it feels the closest to the first three for me. It makes me laugh. I've watched it probably the most outside of the first three. So just have a little bit more of a connection with that one than the rest. But number five for me was Moonrise Kingdom. So
3: Yeah, I think that there's just something about the last half hour of Darjeeling that just doesn't land right with me. Yeah,
4: I get that. That is definitely my biggest critique window of it as well.
3: So your number five was Moonrise. My number four is Bottle Rocket. I would say that on the one hand, it's sort of a litmus test for whether or not you're going to like Wes Anderson, but also at the same time, it's so different from where he ends up later in his career that it's hard to even...
4: You can see the DNA there.
3: Yeah. There's some really hilarious stuff in it. It feels like a 90s indie movie, though, in a way that everything else, including Rushmore, that he's ever done doesn't. It almost feels like something separate from the rest of his career in that sense, but that's probably because it by far would have had the lowest budget and the least amount of experience and all that stuff too. But again, as I've pointed out throughout the episode, there is a little bit of a difference in the scripts that Anderson co-wrote with Owen Wilson. For sure. I really wish that they would write a movie together again at some point. Because there's something that Owen Wilson brings to these stories that has been missing ever since, I think.
4: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have Bottle Rocket as my number three. By deductive reasoning, you can see that the first three are my favorites. The thing I love about Bottle Rocket is while it has that Wes Anderson touch, it really does just feel like that 90s indie cinema At play, too. So it's kind of like those two worlds coming together. You see the start of a new auteur. But it's also just hilarious. I mean, there's so many great lines in it.
3: So your number four was Darjeeling, correct? Yep. Why don't you very quickly give us your 10 through four?
4: Okay, 10 through four was Isle of Dogs, number 10, number 9, French Dispatch, number 8, Fantastic Mr. Fox, 7, Life Aquatic, Six, Grand Budapest Hotel. Five, Moonrise Kingdom. And four, Darjeeling Limited.
3: Okay, now do you want to give us your number three?
4: Yes, Bottle Rocket.
3: (laughs) My number three is the Grand Budapest Hotel, which probably is a little bit of a surprise.
4: I do remember you telling me that you were really into it the last time you watched it.
3: I think there's an underrated rewatchability to it that, I would not have expected the first time seeing it in a theater.
4: And I think like the internet cinephile base does really like this one too, right? Probably. Pops up as a movie people like.
3: Probably. I don't think it really competes with my number 1 and number 2. I know I was stressing 7 through 4, 7 through 3 even. Yeah. is slightly interchangeable, but I do think that this one stands out from his late stage it's so much more interesting to watch than Isle of Dogs or The French Dispatch. Definitely, it's hilarious, and I do think that there is sort of a real emotion at the end of the film that catches you off guard. There is a certain amount of layering to distance yourself from that emotion, where it's somebody's telling a story, and then it's a book, and then it's you know you can't even keep track with all of the stories within I stories know, within yeah. stories, but. Yeah, I love the performances in the film, even beyond Ray Fines, Saoirse Ronan, etc. There is some stuff that's a little goofy, like the skiing stuff towards the end <laughs> that I could kind of do without, but yeah, I, I just really like it. I like the idea of that hotel in the mountains that's really appealing to me for some reason. Absolutely,
4: I'm, I'm here for that too. And you hit it on it earlier, but whatever Wes Anderson's obsession with hotel living that is totally for me
3: i think our top two are probably the same as well to be.
4: yeah rushmore number two
3: royal tenenbaums number one yeah i and mean it seems pretty much impossible if those will be displaced the two masterpieces i'd say he seems to be drifting further and further from this stuff which appeals less and less to me look i made a joke in one of our recent episodes about not being interested in his future films or or what have you. But of course, I'm still going to see anything he comes out definitely. with. Unless he really goes off the rails. But I can't imagine anything connecting like those two films. There was definitely a time in my life where I would have listed Royal Tenenbaums as my favorite film and Rushmore as maybe my second favorite. <laughs> yeah. I'm nowhere near that now.
4: Yeah, that's true. Probably if I did a top 10 movie list in 2000. 2000- five through 2009 both of them were in my top 10
3: yeah Royal Tenenbaums would probably still be there for me Rushmore's maybe drifted a little further down the creek yeah but Royal Tenenbaums
4: yeah. is definitely an annual watch for sure for me
3: both Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums it feels like every line is perfect yeah I know everything just fits so well it's weird because Rushmore came first but there's this reckless energy of royal tenenbaums where on the one hand it's creating a version of new york city that's never existed and will never exist <laughs> the fantasy version and yet it also feels like they're out on the streets and they're in a bodega and I there's know. a dogfight fight and it, i don't know it just feels different from anything else he's ever done even bottle rocket doesn't have that same energy probably because it's not in new york city but I don't know. Everything about Royal Tenenbaums is perfect. It's I know. a and hilarious it's like, movie.
4: I watch it every year. It's a great movie to watch between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I yeah. think it just seems great around that time. And really, because like, they used the Charlie Brown, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It just evokes thing. that emotion. But also, like the family returning home thing. That yeah makes me think of it too. Every time I'm like, man, this this is just such a masterpiece. Like such a great movie. I always find myself getting drawn more close to it with each rewatch.
3: Yeah. I don't know that there's really much to say. It's a tremendous performance from Schwartzman and Bill Murray in Rushmore, and then it's an ensemble cast in Tenenbaums, headlined by the unlikely performance from Gene Hackman, who you would never really imagine in a Wes Anderson (laughs) movie. Totally, And yet it makes perfect sense in a weird way, and is probably, for me at least, the defining late career role for hackman i'd say so yeah more so than anything else he was doing in the 90s and 2000s at least as far as i'm concerned it just really seemed like the perfect moment for gwyneth paltrow ben stiller even owen wilson even luke wilson certainly luke wilson the only thing you could even compare for luke wilson would be like old school yeah right is there No offense. I always liked Luke Wilson, but come on.
4: <laughs> Luke Wilson buried?
3: <laughs> yeah, I just think that it caught all of these people at the right time. The cast is stacked. It's got Angelica Houston, obviously. Of course. Danny Glover. and I don't know. I'm sure that younger people, younger than us, they're not going to connect necessarily with those films the same way. I think that when you discover... filmmaker it's similar to when you discover a band and the the album that you discovered of the band whether it was their first album or their fourth album that's the one you're going to relate to because that's the one you discovered and it always holds a special place
4: well one of the things that I'll give a lot of credit to whether it is these Wes Anderson scripts with Owen Wilson or even a couple of the the later ones years go by and I revisit these and the lines that are built for a laugh are still making me laugh yeah. Which I can't say that about comedies that I watched 20 years ago, you know what I mean? A lot of the time.
3: Yeah, there's nothing particularly time sensitive about the humor in Wes Anderson's films. I right. think for some people it, it does stray into the aha uh-huh rather than haha, but well, Okay, yeah. I do think that there's enough actual legitimate laughs.
4: Well, definitely in Tenenbaum's and Rushmore.
3: Yeah. And that was when he was the golden boy and could do no wrong, and then people yeah, saw yeah. Life Aquatic <laughs> and like, what is this?
4: I know. It's so funny that my original perception of Life Aquatic is not... I was just probably watching it with the early iteration of hipsters, you know what I mean? That were like, this is great.
3: Yeah, I saw an Bill advanced- Murray's in it,
4: Jeff Goldblum's in it.
3: <laughs> I saw an advanced screening of it, and I enjoyed it from day one, yeah. but it did not apparently do that well. And was not loved. But, I just did yeah. right.
4: Yeah. I, I just did not have my finger on the pulse of what was successful and what wasn't in cinema during that time.
3: Although it is strange, I think that Anderson's most successful film at the box office is The Grand Budapest Hotel, which is one of the more inexplicable huge hits yeah, I know. of the last that, ten years. It was a surprise to me at the time. And then Moonrise Kingdom was also a big hit. Whereas I don't really think any of his other films have grossed anything close to those two, but I'd have to double-check the figures. I don't I don't really remember offhand. All right, I think that'll do it for Darjeeling Limited and Hotel Chevalier. It's time to move on. No recommendations because we did that top 10 instead, which is a feature that we may bring out every now and then, and we don't want to do it all oh, the yeah. time. Yeah. But whenever it feels right. It doesn't mean that we're not going to do more Wes Anderson material. We might do a few more or one more or do a revisited of one of those. Who knows? Anything's up in the air. But in the meantime, make sure you're following us on Twitter at Greatest Pod, and make sure you're also subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you find us. Make yeah. sure to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.
4: I would say don't think that you don't need to be subscribed because you look at our catalog and see that we do a bunch of niche shit. You want to see these movies. <laughs> you want to listen to these episodes.
3: Yeah. Please make sure you're subscribed. so That way you download every episode. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like a free sticker, let us know on Twitter at greatest pod and find us on letterboxd Zach, 1983 and Matt Crosby on there. Anything else to add? No, I think we're getting back into the lengthier territory here. The characters are all fictional. We'll talk to you next week.
5: Turds. Five suspects. So many, many nameless victims. The first poop was obviously Frank. Old and weak, he had an accident. That's why he was so intent on destroying it. There were many turds before this, weren't there, Frank? This was just the first time you got caught, wasn't it? And then you went and did it again the next night? Or did you? Two poops and two nights? Tall order for such a short man. No, the second poop belonged to Charles. He wanted to get back at Frank, but due to his poor diet, couldn't produce a turd. So he called Mac, who jumped at the chance to see Frank humiliated one more time. But Charlie overlooked the fact that Dennis listens to Mac's phone calls and he heard every word. Dennis was jealous that Charlie had chosen Mac to help instead of him. He swore to have his revenge. That's why he encouraged Mac to sleep while he stayed up. He was gonna put the frame on Mac by pooping next to him. But he didn't realize that a futon slept on by the weight of three men would be off its axis and slope to the center. And like a small brown snail, crept to the middle between Charlie and Frank. DeAndra, you wanted in on this poop war from the start. No, I didn't. The outcast, the slut, the bitch, the whore, the lonely, sad, slutty, bitchy whore. You sat on the sidelines while these four titans battled it out. You were jealous that a few pieces of poop got more attention than you. That's why, when the lights went out, you unleashed some thunder of your own. Thunder of the chocolate variety. All of that would be fine and dandy, if any of it were true. Uh, Can we wrap this up at some point? In due time, pretty face, in due time. Frank, isn't it true you thought you've been pooping the bed for months now? You chalked it up to your old plumbing and penchant for spicy foods. Morning after morning, you bury your poop after you roast to hide it from Charlie. But convinced that Charlie had discovered his dirty little secret, Frank pooped the bed again the next night as revenge. Only a lot more came out than he expected. He had gone too far. I've gone too far. Due to the size and severity of the poop, Frank concluded that Charlie had been pooping the bed all along. And so he cleaned up the mess and wandered the streets looking for someone who could replicate Charlie's small and malnourished turd. And that's where he came upon his old friend, Rickety Cricket, known the world over for his ability to replicate any man's stool, Cricket came back and committed fecal forgery, which leads us to the third turd. Dennis and Mac thought it'd be funny to put the frame on Frank and Charlie, and so they both pooped. But, as so often happens, the poop rolled together, and two became one. A turd merger, fused together by fear and hatred and hair. But on to the final poop. A poop that can be traced back to D, but not to her butt. The waitress, drunk out of her mind and furious that D had pushed her back into the arms of the bottle, pooped in D's purse while D's back was turned. <laughs> And she carried it unknowingly until she arrived here and the lights went out and she was startled, knocking her purse to the floor, causing the church to tumble where it stands before us right now. Ah! Ah! So as you can see, the mystery of who pooped the bed has been solved. And yes, my friends, in a way, oh, you're all guilty. What?
2: Oh. Nah. I did it. What? I did them all. I did all the poops. Really? really? Yeah. I did I did every one of them. I even did one while she was wrapping up right here. Oh, that's dude. It, dude. Jesus. Oh. oh, my God. Why would you do that, dude? Because poop is funny. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I guess <laughs> poop it. Oh, it's, it's really it's funny. funny. Poop it. Oh, poop it on the floor? It is that funny. That was a good yeah. one. You know what? Well played, my man. Yeah. Well, well, mean, played. well played. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's funny. I hate my life. Yeah. Seriously, dude, don't ever poop in our bed again.